Hello, everybody. Great, great seeing you all. Uh, so, uh, on your way in, you received a little card. Where's mine? Here it is. You received a little card. And this is not to be turned in, okay? This is a tool that we pass out every year at this time of year. It's a tool for you to personally use to think about your own uh, growth in stewardship. We are stewards of what God has placed in our care. We're managers of that, and, and we're all on a journey of growing uh, in all areas of our life, and one of those areas is stewardship. And so, you know, as you think about the coming year, here are some best practices on giving to all the organizations you give to. And uh, we encourage you to put this someplace where you'll see it, and then the next year you can evaluate and see how we did. One of the best ways to reach your goals, by the way, are number four, to automate it. And by automating it, you are taking an important step of faith in doing that. And, uh, and in a sense, you're, you're doing it like the first thing is what you're doing. You're saying, I'm, I'm going to give her the first fruit. And so I encourage you to, to consider in your giving whatever organizations that you automate it with them. But this is a tool uh, for you to use. Uh, again, don't turn it in. <laughs> All right. We, we're not looking for you to turn that in. All right. So we are in a two-week series on baptism that we're calling the story of baptism. And we're on week two. So if you missed last week's. You'll want to go back, but I will give a recap of what we covered uh, last week. We're looking at four reasons why baptism is important. We looked at two last week. We're looking at two this week. So as we say every week, because understanding the Bible and your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery, we open our Bibles here at Five Oaks. So I encourage you to open your Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 3. If you want to grab one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, uh, it's on page 967 uh, in those Bibles, 967. So last week I, I told about a South Asian country uh, that's predominantly Hindu, and in that country it is illegal from the government, it is illegal for a Hindu person to convert to Christianity. And so in the law books, uh, if you get baptized uh, as a Christian and you are Hindu, uh, you could go to jail for up to three years. And if you are the baptizer, you can go to jail for up to six years for doing a baptism. Now, in a country like that, before you get baptized, if you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you're going to want to be really clear about what baptism is, right? You're, you're not just going to, well, it's a thing to do. Uh, we don't have that pressure. Thank God we don't have that pressure. But a lot of times, we don't really think very deeply about baptism. And so that's what we're doing, is we're thinking deeply about it, uh, want clarity about what baptism is. And my hope is, as a result of last week and this week, that if you haven't been baptized, that you will pursue baptism. And secondly, that uh, if you, um, I can't remember, oh yeah, if you've been baptized, <laughs> If you've been baptized, that you will grow in an appreciation for what it is, what happened, what you were celebrating, and that it'll be a catalyst in your own life for your own spiritual growth and the growth of others as well. So we're going to pray together that God would illuminate his word. And so we're going to pray a prayer that's going to be on the screen. We're going to pray it out loud together. So please join me in prayer. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, 
and our wills strengthened to obey it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a couple of five oakers read the passage beginning in chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Uh, so you can follow along as they read. Matthew 3, 11 through 17. John the Baptist is speaking and says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right. So part of the reason we're in Matthew chapter 3 is we spent Advent in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And we're going to be coming back to Matthew over and over again um, for quite a, quite a while. So we'll do mini-series. So we work our way and in other series from other books of the Bible. Uh, over the coming months. Uh, anyways, I want to give a quick overview of what was covered last week. Uh, this is not an in-depth overview, so about five-minute recap uh, real quick. And one of them is what, one of the things that we covered was what is baptism itself. And if you look at the English word to baptize, it's not really a translation. It's a transliteration of a Greek word, which is baptizo, which means to plunge, to dip, or to submerge. And baptism was common uh, a common cleansing ritual in the Judaism of Jesus' day. So before you go into the temple, you would baptize yourself. We looked at uh, one of 40 baptismals around the temple right from Jesus' day. Uh, and it, very much like our baptismal over here with some steps, you would go inside and then you would submerge yourself and then you would get up out of the water. So when John came and he started baptizing people in the Jordan, plunging them into the water and bringing them out again, he was actually doing an innovation as far as we know. There was nobody else who was baptizing uh, other people as far as we know, and especially as a sign of repentance. So John would say, if you are willing to repent of the direction that you've been going, of going away from God and turn back to God, let's mark that moment by baptizing you in the Jordan River. And, um, and we went into why would he use baptism last week, one, one of the most important parts of the sermon last week, but I can't really cover it. So uh, four reasons why baptism is important. The two that we covered last week are we are disciples of Jesus, and Jesus mandated baptism for his disciples. So we are followers. You see the word disciples. It's the way that Jesus spoke of future followers of him are going to be called disciples as well. As disciples of Jesus, he mandated that baptism should happen for them. And so in, in a sense, it is a matter, not in a sense, it is a matter of obedience. So you might say, well, you know, it's going to be so much trouble, and, and, and does, it really, really, does it really matter? Because what really matters is whether I have faith in Christ and all those kinds of things. Well, it matters because he said so. 
It matters because he asks us to do it. Now, that's not the, the only reason. We, we, we can understand a lot more about it. And so that's what we're doing these couple of weeks. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to do it because, you know, check it off, you know, a, a, a list or something like that. So second reason it's important is because we live storied lives and baptisms tells and even reenacts God's redemption story. The Bible is really clear that baptism is a picture of something that God has been doing throughout the whole Bible. And that's where I say this is one that we uh, spent a lot of time looking at last week. You know, why would John use baptism uh, to signify repentance. Uh, there is a thread that runs through all of Scripture that uh, has to do with water and new life and all of that. And so that's what's going on there. And it foreshadows, Jesus' baptism foreshadows many of the things that would be happening in Jesus' life. So when we are baptized, you are reenacting parts of God's story of redemption. You're, in a sense, entering into that story in baptism, and you are being formed by that story. That story is forming your perspective and your life in Christ. Okay, so the third reason, uh, which is, you know, starting something new today. Human thriving depends on outward practices, habits, rituals, and celebrated milestones like baptism. We need good habits. We need good rituals. We need celebrations. We need milestones in our life and then celebrating those milestones. And you can see this in all of life. There are some of the simplest little rituals that we do in our lives, habits, whatever you want to call them, practices that we do in our lives that can have a outsized impact on our life. And one of the best stories I've ever heard about one of those small little rituals and the impact that it can have on your life is uh, from a video that maybe some of you have seen uh, on YouTube. Millions of people have seen it. It's uh, <clears throat> Navy SEAL, uh, Navy Admiral William McRaven, and it's a famous video. And I'm just going to show you one clip because it's the part that's most famous uh, about it. He's giving, he's at his alma mater and back in 2014. And uh, I'll play about a minute and a half portion of that. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and, and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning, we were required to make our bed to perfection. 
That seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. So even if you don't make your bed in the morning, you know what he's saying is true. <laughs> even if it's not for in your life making the bed, okay, you know what he's saying is true, that having, you know, good morning rituals that you go through, some things that you do regularly, that you just get up and, you know, and dash into the day, that it makes a difference in the rest of your day. Making a bed, of course, is one of those uh, morning, can be, can be one of those morning rituals. And you want to live that way. We all want to live that way, where we have certain habits that we work into our life as we start the day because we know it makes a difference in our day. It's one of the, the reasons, uh, you know, especially at this time of year, there's so much stuff out there on productivity and setting goals and how to get good habits in your life. The book Atomic Habits, I listened to an interview this week with the author of that book. I love that book. And it sold 10 million copies. That's a lot of copies for a book. And it's like been out there for about four or five years. And it's been like a number, it's right now a number one bestseller. Again, after five years, it's, it's out there. It's number one on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. So um, we know we seek to have something like that in our lives. Now you can see in the military how making the bed can make such a big difference. Because if you come into the barracks with the guys you're going to be going uh, and doing battle with in some really precise operations, and it's just a mess in the barrack, you're going to be wondering, are they really going to be, you know, on top of things at the time when we need this in order to survive? And, but if you come into the barracks and everything is tip-top and, you know, shape and orderly, you go, we are a well-oiled machine and you go in with greater confidence. You can erode confidence without good habits. You can build confidence with good habits. What does this have to do with baptism? In fact, making a bed, you might say, is very different from baptism because making a bed is private and it's ongoing, whereas baptism is public and it's a one-time thing. Well, I'm going to question two parts of that equation. First of all, is making a bed really a private thing? It's only private if you live by yourself and you always keep your door closed to your bedroom so no one ever sees the unmade bed. All right. So um, for most people, it is not a private thing. And if you start your day out that way, and it, like he said, it, it's that one simple thing that the, leads to another simple thing that leads eventually to the big things, it's having a public effect. So I don't think it's a, it's a completely private thing. Is baptism a one-time event? Yes, for the person who's being baptized, but not 
for the congregation where the baptism is happening. It is an ongoing celebration that happens over and over again. It's an ongoing ritual, ritual being used in the best sense of that word. It's an ongoing ritual, a rhythm of life. And when baptisms aren't happening in a church, if you're in a church and for years baptisms aren't happening, unless you live like in the farthest reaches of Alaska in a town of 12 people and you have a church of four people or something like that and you're not seeing baptisms happen. If you're like in a church like this or even a church of 100 people or smaller and baptisms aren't happening, you know something is wrong. It's an important, it's an important rhythm in the life of a congregation. All right, so let's look at the personal aspect. Celebrating milestones is important in an individual's life. It inspires continued effort in other areas of life. He was talking about that in the video. It adds to the joy of accomplishment, and it makes us feel valued. All right, so think about the milestones that you celebrate, that we celebrate in our society. We celebrate birthdays, graduations, engagements and weddings, anniversaries, promotions, retirements, we also celebrate a bunch of other things like paying off debt, buying a new house, first day of school, first day of summer vacation, getting an A in a really tough class. We do that. Every culture celebrates milestones throughout all of history. Why? Because it's important. It has an impact on the individual. You may say, like me, I don't like celebrating my milestones. It's always like, uh, this earlier this year or last year, we celebrated 25 years of me serving as the lead pastor of Five Oaks. And as that day approached, I was squirming because it just makes me so uncomfortable. And yet I do it. Why do I do it? Because I know it's important for us. It's important for our community. It's important for us celebrating other people's milestones as well. And I can't be an exception to that just because it makes me uh, a little bit or maybe a lot uncomfortable. Plus, I also know that when it's all done, I'm really happy that we did it. And so it really fills, it fills my soul. It really does. So your baptism is important, but it's important for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's important witness for your family or your kids or for your parents. It can be an important witness for people who are exploring Christianity, that are here, that are exploring Christianity to see that happening and understand what's going on when that's happening. The stories that are told when that happens. By the way, do you hear the noise? That's a little habit that we have that I love in our church. It's the notes changing over when we go to the backside of the paper. All right, I, I noticed that last service. I'm like, okay, I gotta stop and point that out. I love that noise. All right, so baptism. Why do we, uh, why is it important? Fourth reason, final reason that we're covering. We are embodied beings. Baptism is one of the mandated physical embodied representations, you know, an outward representation of something that we have done in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. We make a decision to follow Jesus. Baptism becomes an outward representation of following Jesus. So Christian philosopher J James K. A. Smith, I pointed it out probably more than once, he has this little saying that he says. He says, we are not brains on a stick. 
we have bodies. God has created us with bodies. Bodies are important. Bodies are the way that we are to exist now, and bodies will be the way we'll exist for all of eternity. If we believe 1 Corinthians 15, which tells us that we're going to get resurrection bodies. And then we look at Jesus' resurrection body and we see that he ate and we see all the things that he did and all the things, incredible things that he could do um, at, with that resurrection body. But it is an embodied existence for now and for all of eternity. We know this, but for some reason, we often think that all that matters is what goes on between our two ears, in our brains. And especially we think that when it comes to matters of faith. How many times have you heard someone say, well, my faith is a private thing? N not a Christian faith. Christian faith is not a private, it's a personal thing, but it's not just personal. And it's definitely not a private thing. So God calls us, if we're his followers of Jesus, he calls us, for example, to physical way, to gather together, to speak, when we're gathered together, to speak, to sing, and to eat. He mandates it in our lives. We literally eat bread and drink from a cup in remembrance of Him. These are all embodied experiences. God could have called us together and simply said, I want you to come together and I have a few chosen people that I want you to watch and listen as they speak, as they sing, and as they eat. But it's not the way he did it. He wants all of us to gather and speak and sing and eat. He calls us to participate together with our bodies. Now, let's take singing uh, for, for example. Singing is actually mandated for followers of Jesus. It's, it's mandated for followers of Jesus. So, a couple of places where you see this, and it's illustrated in all kinds of other ways, uh, but it's actually where in Colossians chapter 3, it says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. It's one of the 60-something one another's in Scripture. You seek and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So you gather together and you sing songs to God. Now, Ephesians says a similar thing, but it doesn't just say sing to God. It says you're singing to one another. All right, so it says be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. Now, how do we speak to one another? With psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So it's it's a horizontal thing. It's a vertical thing. Singing is. How does the message of Christ move into our hearts and minds? It happens in part as we sing songs to one another and to God. It's an embodied physical experience. So I read an article um, not that long ago. Uh, it was a, a blog post by a pastor. And he was, the blog post was where he was lamenting and wondering at the curiosity, he said, of the fact that men so oftentimes in churches don't sing. And I don't think that's true at Five Oaks, but um, he was talking about that. And so he says, it's curious because he recalls, he says, I spent 10 years in the U.S. Army. And one of the ways the Army builds a sense of team and camaraderie 
is through singing. Uh, they sang, he said, we sang everywhere we went. We sang when we walked places. We sang when we ran places. We sang during drills. Singing changed our moods created a common bond as you're enduring some tough training together. Singing in the, melody, in the military builds uh, motivation for hard work that's up ahead. He, you, he says you sing even if you don't feel like singing, in part because you always have somebody yelling at you, telling to sing louder. Uh, we should do that in church. We're going to have people walking the house, sing louder! Um, <laughs> So this is what he writes. He says, men actually love to sing. Uh, I've seen it. Singing is a masculine thing to do. And that's why the phenomenon in the church is quite curious. Uh, one of our members walked by me in the commons and sang one of his marching songs from when he was in the army. I said, well, maybe that's why they don't sing. Uh, <laughs> um, anyways, uh, so... The military is on to something. The Bible tells us not to forsake meeting together. And then it says, because when you meet together, you're encouraged. And when you get together, what are you going to do? How are you encouraged? Well, in part, one of the things, by literally singing to one another. That is part of the way that you're going to be encouraged. We're called to speak and sing to one another um, these, these, these are important embodied experiences. Baptism is an embodied experience. Why am I talking about singing? Because it is another one of the embodied experiences that we have. It's baptism is one of those that God mandates for his people. One more example, <laughs> the Lord's Supper. All right. The Bible could have simply said, I want you to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the supper that Jesus had with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And this is how you're going to do it. You gather together and you think, you imagine Jesus with his disciples around him. And Jesus said this to the disciples, and you can talk about that. And I want you to imagine Jesus saying that. Then I want you to imagine Jesus eating the bread and drinking from the, and the disciples together, eating the bread and drinking the cup. Are we done? Okay, let's move on to what's next. But the Bible doesn't do that, does it? It tells us to literally eat bread, to literally drink from a cup as we remember, as a way of remembering the, the actions take it down deeper into our lives because we are embodied. Um, we're, we're, we're embodied creatures. And the meal also foreshadows a meal that Jesus is going to have with us when he comes. It talks about it even in the institution of the Lord's Supper. There's going to be a day. Jesus talks about it all the time in the Gospels. We'll see it in the Gospel of Matthew. There's going to be a day when there's going to be a meal. We have no reason to believe that it's not a real meal. It's not an imaginary meal as we're floating around bodiless, you know, in, you know, in heaven or something like that. It's going to be a real meal that we're going to enjoy together with Jesus. And we get a taste of it, a preview, a trailer I've often talked about. It's like a trailer of what's to come when we eat, celebrate communion together. I remember hearing a, a prisoner, a, a former prisoner of war uh, during the Vietnam War. He'd been in the infamous Hanoi Hilton um, during the Vietnam War. And he was talking about 
how they would, they were isolated in these cells, but they would communicate with each other, speak to each other with Morse code on the, on the pipes. And they would have conversations that way. And one of the things that we do is that someone on Sunday would tap out the words to the Lord's Supper from Scripture. And each one of them, in the isolation of their own cell, would participate together as they listened. And when it came time to take and eat the bread, they would, in the isolation of their cell, without any bread, without a cup, they would reach, put the bread in their mouth, and chew it. Nothing. Just reach. And then they would take the cup, and they would drink from the cup. Even without the bread, even without the cup, they had an embodied experience. They didn't just think about it. They had an embodied experience. They took it on as they were hearing the words being tapped on the pipes. Singing, speaking, eating, these are all embodied experiences. Baptism, it's an embodied experience. We're not brains on a stick. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. I told you we'd look at this this week. Uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about something else. We won't look at what he's talking about, but he uses the illustration of baptism, and this is what he says. He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there is an image in baptism. We talked about that last week, uh, a biblical image of dying when going under the water. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so we have this. This doesn't make any sense unless they had the embodied experience to go with it of the death going into the water, of the life coming out of the water. Scholars will often say, just about anything that you read, scholarly articles or whatever, unbaptism, they will say, we know of no unbaptized believers in the New Testament apart from the thief on the cross. It's just, it's what you did. Because Jesus said, it's what you do. You get baptized. And so, it's a shared, shared embodied experience. The one getting baptized feels the water as the water covers them. They hold their breath or they exhale while they're going down under the water. They hear the splash of the water all around their ears and then they feel the air as they come out. The rest of us in the congregation see it. We hear it. It's an embodied experience that we celebrate together. All right, why is baptism important? Four reasons I've given you. The first one is Jesus said to do it. It's mandated for his followers. It's important, number two, because we live, uh, we live lives in the story of God and we live embodied lives and we live in a story and we reenact in the story. We reenact the story of redemption in baptism. We covered that last week. This week, Baptism is important because it's a positive habit for the community. Um, it shapes us 
the baptizee, the people participating. The church needs to be in the regular habit of celebrating this milestone in people's lives. If the milestone isn't happening in people's lives, there's a problem in that church. And it's important, number four, because we are embodied beings, and baptism is a way that we literally feel and taste and smell and see what salvation is about. It's a death as we go under the water, a rising to new life. In our salvation, we die to ourselves. We die to, um, to sin. We are raised in Christ. Now, the whole rest of the Christian life is aligning the rest of our life with that. But that is an objective fact that before God, we have died to sin. Jesus's, Jesus's righteousness has been transferred to us by faith. Not by baptism, but by faith. And our sin has gone to him on, on the cross. All right. So three questions that are oftentimes raised, and, uh, and so I wanted to have a little bit of time to, to address those questions. Uh, so the first, the first question that's oftentimes raised is, what if you were baptized as a baby? So we've been talking about plunging and going under and all that sort of thing, and they don't usually, some, some I think Eastern Orthodox maybe do, but most don't plunge babies underwater. So at Five Oaks, our practice is, and our theology is around, baptism by immersion, uh, by going under, and only for people who are believers, who have professed to be followers uh, of Christ. And so when someone has professed that they have been, they've become Christians by receiving by faith what Jesus did on the cross for their sins, and based on that faith and on God's grace alone, not their own performance, but on what God has done, then baptism is a way of then professing that faith publicly to everyone else. And so when someone becomes a Christian, we want them to get baptized and we immerse them under water. But some of you come from traditions where you were baptized as an infant. It's different than our theology. There is a, uh, an article that you can read. It's, a, uh, it's in the outline uh, that talks about within the evangelical tradition, those that believe in infant baptism, those that believe in believer baptism by immersion, and you can read about it as those two are compared. So I've said this before when we talk about baptism. Some of my biggest heroes of the faith from past and present baptize babies. And it, they have a rich theology of infant baptism. And they come from denominations like Presbyterian, uh, Lutheran, Anglican, some of those denominations that baptize infants. And so uh, they have a very rich theology. If that is your background and you hold to that theology, not because, well, that's what we did, but you hold, you can articulate what that theology is. You can say, this is why infant baptism is important and still important in my life. And if I have children, I would have them baptized as infants. Then you probably shouldn't get baptized as an adult. Uh, hold to that theology. Five Oaks, you don't have to be baptized, like to be a member, to participate, to be on leadership, any of those type of things. And, and my advice to you is, if that's your theology, you don't, you don't, I can't argue with you. I mean, I can argue with you, but... You know, you know how much I love Tim Keller, for example. He baptizes babies. You know, what am I going to do? You know, Tim, you're wrong. Yeah, I'm going to explain to you, you know, what it is. Um, 
so that's what I would say. If you hold to that, you baptize your, your babies. We don't hear, but if you do, you know, you go someplace where that's done, whatever, or it was done in the past, then you probably shouldn't be baptized as an adult. But if you're here now and you do what we do, which is dedicate children, and, um, and you're waiting for your child to profess Christianity before they're baptized, and, uh, and that really is where you are now, and you really can't articulate the other one, or you can articulate it, but you don't agree with it anymore, you should be baptized as an adult. And, um, and, it's, and it, if you're, I was talking to someone earlier today, uh, and they were telling me how this has been a real problem for them because they were baptized as a baby. It was a very, very important thing for their parents, and they feel like they're going to like, disrespect their parents if they get baptized as an adult. And what I've heard oftentimes, and I'll pass it on to you, is, uh, I mean, this person was in tears as they were talking about it. I said, the most important thing you can do is have this conversation, just like you're having it with me, with the tears, which are very genuine, um, and tell them, you did this because of your love for God. You wanted me to love God as well. I'm completing what you started. It may not agree. We may not agree now theologically on this, but I just want you to understand this is honoring to you. Now, they may not agree, but you can't, as an adult, you just can't live your whole life always thinking about what's mom, mommy or daddy going to think about this. So you need to make a decision for yourself on this. But there is a way to at least soften the blow for some family in a situation like that. Second question, this one's uh, quick. What if you're deathly afraid of going underwater or... You suffer from severe social anxiety. So, you know, standing in front of here and everybody and going into the water, you know, it's like it, it puts you into a horrible state. You're disabled and it's just not going to happen. You're not going to go in there uh, or any other kind of reasonable concern like that one. What if? We can accommodate whatever it is. We can accommodate it. Can't go into the water, we'll sprinkle or pour water over you. It's not like if you don't go under the water, you're going to go to hell. You know, it's not, it's not like that, okay? You're, we can do that. Severe social anxiety. Uh, I've talked to people who have severe social anxiety, okay? And I, 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 can, I don't know what, I don't have that experience, but it doesn't have to be done in our service. We can do it with a smaller group of people. We can accommodate that. And just about any of these things, we can we can accommodate. Last question. This is the one that really is at the bottom of a lot of these questions. Uh, it's oftentimes unstated. What if it's been years, decades, since I became a Christian? Isn't it kind of late at this point to make a public profession? I mean, I've been serving on my church's board for years and uh, I've raised my kids in Christ. Why, why now? Well, rather than address this directly, I'm just going to tell you a story, and I think it'll, it'll answer your question. Um, so in my story, I, I, I brought some, some things to show you, but I, there was just some that I couldn't, I couldn't bring. Um, one of them was my certificate, uh, my diploma from seminary, okay? So if you were to see, it, it's inside of a big, gigantic thing. I didn't want to carry the whole thing uh, because it's got some other pictures and some other documents inside of it, um, of a frame. 
And so if, um, if, uh, if I were to bring it, you would look at my diploma from seminary and it would say 1983. That's when I got my diploma. Uh, I went looking for my ordination certificate. So I was ordained in Kansas before coming here. And I went looking for it. It was in a different denomination. And uh, I, I can't find it. <laughs> I know I can find it eventually, but I didn't have time to find it. So uh, if I showed you that, the year would be something like 1989 or 1990. All right. So that would be the year. It's the year that is key. Um, whether you know it or not, you, got, you all gave me this. <laughs> Back in February 1st, 2022, we celebrated it that weekend, and it's uh, an appreciation for 25 years of serving as a lead pastor at Five Oaks, all right, 25 years. The date on it is February 1, 2022. And what I have here, and now I bent it, um, is my ministry license to minister within our denomination. And the date of it is... 7th of November, 2022. <laughs> I don't have another one. So I got a certificate to minister within this denomination in November after celebrating 25 years of ministering in this denomination <laughs> the same year. Okay, there's a bit of a story behind that. I'll give you the short version. Uh, when I came, our denomination doesn't require that you be licensed or ordained to minister within our denomination. And uh, so when I came here in 1997, I had just, I show you another diploma for my doctor of ministry in 1996. And when I got here, I'm like, I'm, I am, if it's not required, I am so done with reading books that people tell me to read and passing tests that I have, you know, and all that sort of stuff. I am so ready to do the work of ministry here. And it was a lot of work. And so I just put it off. And I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And it wasn't required. So, you know, after a while, I'm just like, I may never get done. I asked our district superintendent one time, I said, hey, you know, when I retire, if I wanted to be an interim in churches, free churches here in this area, you know, would, uh, would it be a problem that I'm not licensed or ordained? He said, no, no, we know you. You know, been here 25 years. <laughs> we know you. It, it wouldn't be a problem at all. But over the last five years, the president of our denomination, other leaders within our denomination, our state superintendent, all that I just greatly love and respect, have been really saying it's really important that you get licensed within the free church. Really important that that, that happen in churches. Five Oaks didn't require it. It's up to the individual churches whether they're going to require it or not. <clears throat> and, uh, and so I didn't need to do it. Uh, but they, about a year ago, they said, we now have an expedited process for getting licensed. Now, the reason that they were making the case for that had to do in part with accountability and with so many stories of so many abusive situations in churches and denominations. And they're saying, we can be of a greater help if your pastor is licensed. There's more accountability to you as a pastor if you're licensed and ordained within the denomination. That was the case that we're make, they were making. 
And so they came up with the expedited license, which meant the board had to fill out this long thing on my character and all that kind of stuff. Um, I had to fill out a form. I had to go through an interview. I had to agree with the statement of faith without reservation and so on. All that had to happen, but it was expedited. Okay, it wasn't like I had to do all the steps for a license and I got the license. Why did I get it? I got it because I couldn't argue with their reasoning. Couldn't argue with their reasoning. I didn't have to, but I couldn't argue with their reasoning. This isn't mandated by Jesus. <laughs> Baptism is. It's mandated by Jesus. But I couldn't argue with their reasoning. And so here's, here's the kicker. I think in March or April, I'm not sure, we have our state convention. We're going to be meeting in a very large church. There are going to be hundreds of people there. They're going to ask all the people that have been licensed or ordained in the last year to come to the front to be celebrated. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to have to walk to the front of the church. (laughs) And it's not like everybody knows me, but a lot of people know me. (laughs) And they're going to be going... but I'm going to do it. I mean, I'm very tempted to walk, you know, I was thinking, maybe I just like, go eat something. Uh, oh, I missed that session. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to miss the session. I'm going to do my walk of shame. <laughs> From my perspective. All right. I'm going to do it. Um, because it's important. Not just for me. It's important for everyone else there. What if it's been years or decades since I became a Christian? I think you have my answer, right? I think you have my answer. All right, now before baptism, let's be really clear on this. We're not saved by baptism. We're saved by putting our faith alone in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And it's by God's grace alone that we are made right with God. And so that is a personal decision that you need to make in your own life. Don't get baptized without having made that personal decision. Many of you have heard this illustration before. I'll give it to you again because some have not heard it. But many religions, in fact, many of the ways that Christians see Christianity is that there's this staircase in front of us. It's, a, it's an arduous staircase. It goes on for a long time. It's very difficult to, carry, to, to, to climb it. And it's, it's the staircase of doing good works and living in a way that, that, that God has called us to live. And we see it as this thing that we trudge through. And, oh, man, we have setbacks and we do bad things and we go backwards and we get off the staircase. Then we get back on and finally we get to the top and we knock on a door and Jesus answers the door and says, why should I let you in? And we say, because I made it. <laughs> He says, yeah, but what about all the bad stuff you did too? And you bow, and we expect Jesus to say, but you're basically a good person. Welcome to my kingdom. That's not Christianity. <laughs> That's not Christianity. Christianity is, there's a door, and it's at the bottom of the staircase. And Christianity is clearly, you put your faith in Christ. You knock on the door. And Christ opens the door. And you have put your faith in him. And the reason he lets you in is because you say, not based on anything I've done. 
I haven't even started on the staircase, or I tried these other staircases, and they didn't work, and I was no good at it, and I failed in every way, but I'm here now for your staircase. I have put my faith, you, you have made me right, not me. And he goes, all right, come on in. And then you climb the staircase together. You climb the staircase together. And there are going to be setbacks, but he's there with you. He will never leave you. That's Christianity. If you've not received by faith, receive it today, if you believe. If not, hopefully you're a step closer to receiving Christ. But you can receive Christ right now, right where you are, by just stating that to him. Forgive me of my sins. Make me right with you based on what Jesus did. Let's begin our response. It's the third movement of our worship. After listening to God's word, we respond to God's word. We begin our response in here. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for your grace. Help us to, as we go through this week, to lean heavily on your grace and that your grace would change us and shape our lives, our everyday lives pray for anyone here today who has not received you as Lord and Savior, that they would by putting their faith in you, believing what Christ, trusting what Christ has done uh, for them on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.